Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm Vinay Prasad. I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. I'm a practicing hemonc doctor, and my interests are medicine, oncology, and health policy. And that's what you're going to get on Plenary Session. This week on Plenary Session, in honor of Delta, we're going to take a break from our planned hashtag zero COVID, and we're going to cover SARS-CoV-2. I'm going to put together all of the clips I've been putting out on the YouTube channel into one episode. And if you want to keep up with all of the content, you're going to have to go to YouTube and subscribe. And I, Prasad, MDMPH, check it out there. And without further ado, this is a special episode. It's in violation of season four rules, but it is in fact, hashtag all COVID, hashtag Delta. If you like this podcast, leave us a rating or write us a review. It helps new listeners find the show. You can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. You can email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. Give us your suggestions on what we should be covering. And if you really love this show, you can back us on patreon.com. All right, we're rolling. I'm back in plenary session, virtual edition. I'm joined by the great Zeb Yamrozik. Um, and I hope I pronounced that right. How do you say it? Yeah, Yamrozik, that's, that's great. Thanks for that. You are an internist. You're in Melbourne, Australia. You are also a researcher affiliated with the University of Oxford, working as we all are, remote. No one's working on site these days. And you are on Twitter. And actually, I didn't know it was you. I mean, obviously, I didn't know you. I just started following Infectious Disease Ethics at ID underscore ethics, bioethicist doctor, own views with data. And the reason I was so drawn to your account is because I think um, you have such a sensible way of thinking about these policies. And it's uh, very akin to how I think about a lot of things. And I haven't seen too many people give voice to it. And so it was um, uh, an oasis in the desert to find your account on this uh, hellhole of Twitter. Uh, so it's a pleasure to meet you and be able to speak with you today. Yeah, thanks. Likewise, a pleasure to be here. <clears throat> You're a practicing internist. You are someone who studies, I think, infectious disease history, infectious disease ethics, and you are somebody who has followed very closely the pandemic. I wonder if you might, um, well, at first I'd love to hear any sort of overarching thoughts you have on this, but then I wanna run through the timeline with you. So um, we'll give you your overall thoughts on it, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, yes, I work on infectious disease ethics in my research. I'm interested in research ethics and infectious disease research, and I'm also interested in uh, infectious disease public health ethics. Mm. And I've spent years thinking about this kind of thing before the pandemic came around, of course. Um, and you know, public health ethics, really is about, um, you know, pointing to the fact that public health is about multiple different values that are sometimes in conflict. You know, mm -hmm. one value is health. Uh, that's what many people think is the main value. The but only another, value, safety and health. <laughs> but another, another important ethical value is fairness. Uh, you know, how health and other kind of restrictions get distributed in society can be more or less fair. Uh, and another important value is freedom. And those are the most important three values, you know, health, fairness, and freedom, otherwise known as, you know, utility, liberty, and justice. Um, and, you know, public health, if it's appropriately conducted, is supposed to strike a fair balance right. between those different values. Right. Um, right. And so, yeah, it was, and, that was and in, pretty... Yeah, and in partnership with the people and what people want. That's right. I mean, if you're in a liberal democracy, uh, many people think that the public health priorities should be set through transparent, accountable, you know, participatory means uh, where we, yeah, consult with the community and find out find out their values and then try and strike a balance between different people's views, you know, allowing for the fact that different people will have different personal values and priorities. 
So I want to start with one issue, which I think I saw you tweet about recently, which is the issue that I've been banging on about for a long time, which is cluster randomized control trials. And I want to say why, why I think they're so important. Um, <clears throat> it is clear there are many people who want to maximize human health. And I don't necessarily disagree with them. You know, I'm very akin to that. Uh, I'm a very sympathetic to sort of a utilitarian view of human health and wanting to maximize well-being, um, using even at times, I think, strong measures to do that. My problem is, is that it's not enough for me, for you to assert blindly that what you are saying will maximize human health. I'm a person who likes to see data. I want you to convince me it does. And when you repeatedly, consistently, and for a long period of time erode liberty, you have some moral obligation to generate credible data. I wonder if you might start talk with this issue. And this applies to, I think, non-pharmacological interventions, applies to all sorts of things. Yeah, exactly. It applies to everything. So, I mean, just, just to take one step back, and yeah, yeah, I agree. I'm committed to the idea of uh, increasing population health overall. Um, but yeah, we just keep in mind that, say, for example, you might do interventions that increase population health overall, but that mainly increases the health of the rich, for example, right. uh, and the health of the poor might be actually made worse, yeah. but overall population health might go up and that might be a more unfair kind of distribution of health. And we've seen some of that in the pandemic. So for health maximization, yeah, it's one important value. But as you say, yeah, I mean, there's kind of, there's kind of a few crises going on in public health right now. And two of those crises are a crisis of evidence. And the second <laughs> one's a crisis of ethics, I guess. But the, um, the crisis of evidence is really interesting because, yeah, you've done lots of amazing work in evidence-based medicine, mainly clinical medicine for years. And, you know, up until we started doing evidence-based medicine, clinical medicine was kind of based on, I don't know, hearsay, what you were taught by your, the people who trained you, mm -hmm. um, kind of simple mechanistic beliefs about what we, what we expected might work and so on. But then we developed ways of testing that, you know, including by randomized control trials to make sure uh, that what we were doing was beneficial uh, and ideally to make sure that the benefits outweighed the harms. Right. Uh, and, um, you know, what's interesting there is that, uh, you know, there's been some big successes in clinical randomized trials in the pandemic, uh, you know, developing some, you know, effective therapies like dexamethasone and so on. Right. But there's been a lot of failures and, and there's been a, not only a failure uh, to, you know, collect evidence in public health, especially randomized control trial evidence. But there's been even a resistance to the idea right, that we right, right. could or should. Um, yeah. And as you say, you know, we have we have um, randomized control trial designs, cluster randomized trials that are easily adaptable to the public health context. And just about any intervention imaginable can be tested. Mm. Um, and I think a lot more, you know, should have been tested. And yeah, I posted that example from 2011 where a Japanese uh, group tested an intervention, which was asking people who, whose family members develop symptoms of influenza mm -hmm. to stay at home. Right. Uh, Not to spread see it at they, work. Yeah, that's right. To see if they could reduce spread from the household to work. And they found, well, two important things, which is, well, that intervention did reduce the spread of influenza at work, but it also increased the risk to the individuals who stayed home. Right. And so it identifies an important trade-off. And then we can try and work out whether that trade-off right. is worthwhile, you know, once we've got, you know, good readouts on, on what you know, different interventions can produce. Yeah, and ways to mitigate the trade-off, maybe by moving them to a hotel or something like that. But you're absolutely right. I mean, <clears throat> I don't know where to jump in on this. I mean, I notice uh, uh, a few things. Um, one, early on in the pandemic, of course, for the first few weeks, community cloth masking, don't do that. Obviously, the pre-existing body of evidence was always equivocal, so we don't want to do it. But then suddenly, there was that new evidence that you're aware, you know, that new evidence appeared, that magical new evidence, and it became the thing to do. 
And then very quickly, we saw a propaganda campaign, I think. And it was led by a lot of people who, you know, in name are scientists, um, but they became propagandists um, over exaggerating the confidence of the evidence, uh, which I think was to their peril, because nothing will aggravate the masses more by being told they're stupid because you literally did a 180. You literally have no new evidence you're producing, and no one is that stupid to know you're not playing some game. Um, you either lied to me before, you're lying to me now. You cannot possibly be telling me the truth. And uh, But we saw that, and one of the efforts of propagandism, propaganda in this moment, in my opinion, was not only to promote what they wanted, which I actually don't disagree with. I think you can do things in exigent circumstances, but to simultaneously torpedo any efforts to collect evidence is what bothered me. Um, you could have done it and also run the cluster trial and had universal cloth masking outside of the trial while you ran the trial, but to do it and not run the trial has left us in a quite a lurch. Any thoughts? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's um, that absence of evidence. It has been a real disaster and and compounded by yeah, what you've called a propaganda campaign. But yeah, I mean, if you look at every single pandemic planning document from pre-2020, yeah, I, I don't think the evidence of masking is equivocal. The evidence is all negative, you know? I mean, can, we know we knew that masks worked in hospitals. <coughs> uh, they reduce risk of hospital transmission when worn by healthcare professionals in high-risk situations and yeah. so on. But every basically every trial that had been done in community settings had shown College no... dormitories, et cetera, in right. season, right? Yeah, I know. Situations where you think they might you know, plausibly provide a benefit. There was no benefit. And everybody knew that. Um, to be fair, it was different pathogens. I mean, that is a fair critique. It was a different pathogen. But that just means the evidence base is all the more lacking for this particular pathogen, if anything. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's all the more reason why we should run trials. Yeah. And, and it's, I agree. I mean, the one of the most important resources in public health is trust. Yeah. The community have to trust what they're being told. Uh, and, you know, what they're being asked to do is based on what people say it's based on. And this very early in the pandemic, this sudden, almost religious conversion experience that yeah. people had uh, saying the science has changed when, in fact, nothing you know, important yeah. about the science had changed was really dangerous because, because it implied that uh, we could just change you know, our interpretation of the science to fit the narrative. It implied that a few kind of cherry-picked observations could yeah. contradict kind of years of years of evidence. Yeah, and uh, and yeah, it it led to, as you say, um, you know, a real disconnect between the science and the and the kind of um, public health consensus, which nevertheless claimed to be based on science. And it took away opportunities to to test some of these hypotheses, you know, to the point where. The only places, as far as I'm aware, that have uh, you know tested uh, masks have been yet yeah, Denmark, Bangladesh, and I think we're, we're still the waiting Guinea, on Guinea-Bissau. Yeah, yeah. Guinea-Bissau, right? And only two um, are cluster, and one is in you know individual level randomization. Yeah, that's right. And and um, I mean that's an embarrassment for kind of the total failure. Totally. The, 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 there are so many opportunities to test those and to test totally. all kinds of public health interventions. Um, and we haven't done that. And it, we need to be honest about that. I, I think throughout the pandemic we should have said. You know, I have a lot more faith in maybe the general public. You know, I deal with patients every day. Yeah. People aren't yeah. perfect, but if you just level with them, they're, yeah. they're very reasonable. And of if we course. told them we're not sure if it will work, but we want you to wear them just in case. And meanwhile, we're going to collect some evidence to see how well they work. I mean, I think that would have been a that would have been an honest way of framing. I think so. Uh, the really, data. So it, would have, it would have diminished a lot of the polarization. And um, you know, related to that, we also let the reductionists in the room. These reductionists, I've spent the better part of my career 
kicking out of the room. I don't want your mechanism of action. I know it's plausible. Everything is plausible. All my failed cancer drugs and all my successes were bioplausible. I don't need your mannequin study. I mean, it's it's necessary. If it didn't do anything in the mannequin, I wouldn't want to even try it, but it's not sufficient. I need randomized control trials of a public health strategy run on human beings living in the real world as we live. Um, and yet I think the problem was it became reduced to I mean, how many infographics I saw about, you know, a cloth and a chamber and a mask wearing and a this and a that. And, and I was like, you know, I, I, it pained me as an evidence-based medicine person to see this level of, I mean, it was just backwards. I mean, we had done so much. We'd learned so many times that reductionist thinking is insufficient. And yet we were right back there and couldn't say anything too. Yeah, let's talk about that. The climate of trying to talk around it. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So I mean, I think that's that's one of the long-term dangers faced by health professionals yeah. as a kind of um, bad outcome from this pandemic, which is that if we abandon, you know, years of learning about how to determine benefits and harms of interventions, and we just go based on people's kind of gut feeling about mechanisms and kind of expert consensus or whatever, well, then we're really going back in time mm -hmm. to a bad, you know, dark, unscientific place. And if that becomes generalized beyond kind of non-pharmaceutical public health interventions, which it sort of looks like it is, oh, you yeah, know, based, on, based on what the FDA is approving at the moment, well, then we're in really we're in really big trouble. Um, and like you say, um, you know, the, the, maybe there's a space for kind of reductionist mechanistic thinking in the room, but but you've done lots of work on medical reversals. And sometimes it's the things that are the most plausible. Yeah, that mostly fail. <laughs> that, that generate consensus. So lots of people believe that they work. Uh, but that then fail terribly when we actually yeah. test them in a rigorous kind of way. Um, and yeah, I think that that's a real, that's a real danger. If we allow that kind of anecdotal thinking, uh, this kind of yeah, appealing to one single case or some <laughs> new observational data that contradict previous randomized control trials to, to enter into our thinking in, in a longer term way, well, then yeah, science is in a really bad place. I saw something funny. I saw somebody say, um, you know, this is somebody who's been very critical of ivermectin. And to be honest, I'm critical of it too. You know, I've done a couple of videos of it, very critical. Um, why am I critical? My pretest probability for every, any novel drug is in is pretty much in the toilet. And uh, th by that, I mean the probability a new drug works for a new purpose is baseline very, very low, even with all the mechanistic science you want and all the, you know, uh, re retrospective observational cherry picked kind of stuff. It's still very, very low. You run a randomized trial and you'll see what happens, but mostly you're going to fail. That's just life. Um, so, you know, I, I, I agree, ivermectin, low pretest probability, but at the same time, I want to be careful how you talk about something in active randomized controlled trials. You don't want to poison equipoise and prevent enrollment because we fear monger too much. You want to really preserve equipoise and allow people to accrue. Um, so I saw this person who has been, you know, vigorously campaigning against it, I think in part because it's become kind of tribal and you get a lot of retweets and likes and clicks by talking about it all the time. I'm not that interested in it. Um, but this person said, um, we shouldn't adopt medical therapies based on, uh, you know, mechanistic science and low levels observational studies. And then the next tweet was, make sure to mask your two-year-old. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, damn it, the two-year-old. I was like, what data do you think you got there? You got low level observational studies. Studies, you know, actually, to be honest, you don't even have that. You don't even have that. You have like no data at all. It's bioplausibility and the skin of your teeth. Um, so the, the the fact they don't recognize it's the same thing. It's just a pill. It's just an NPI. It's just a thing. It's just a thing that needs to be tested as a pretest probability. And you run a randomized control trial or cluster design, depending on if you think it helps others or just yourself. Um, thoughts? Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, there's lots of really interesting points there, but I mean, one thing is, yeah, regardless of the intervention, we're supposed to start with the null hypothesis, right? The idea, the idea that it doesn't work. 
Um, and then we're trying to like, yeah, disrupt ourselves from the null hypothesis by gathering data very carefully. And I want to say um, one more thing on that point, which is that it's not just um, like some frequentist philosophy. It's also the reality that most of the things human beings do to improve our material condition do not, in fact, do that. Life is difficult to improve upon. And that's why the pretest probability, the null is so good. It is the yeah. null, practically, essentially. That's right. And I mean, and, and so, yeah, I totally agree that when you start off with all these compounds in a laboratory, you can do all these in vitro things, but they don't really usually translate that the probability that they translate is very low. Um but there's even a second reason to be even more kind of skeptical mm -hmm. when it comes to acute viral illnesses, which is we just don't have a lot of great compounds anywhere right. that prevent Treat any pre virus. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, I mean, with the except with the exception of maybe you know there's new Hep C drugs and so on. But sure. but in terms of acute viral infections, a, a drug that either prevents progression or can kind of pull someone out once they've got severe disease. Right. Gosh, we haven't had a lot of those despite a long time looking. And yeah, you're familiar with the kind of Tamiflu debacle where yeah, yeah evidence-based medicine was hijacked in the last pandemic to kind of attempt to show that this antiviral worked for influenza. But I mean, I'm very doubtful that it does. And it certainly doesn't prevent progression, which is what the company wanted us to believe. I remember also Tamavir and the great uh, Tom Jefferson analysis in the BMJ, where I think uh, it shortened symptoms by a day in the pooled analysis, but you had more nausea on day one. So it's like a total useless wash of it. That's right. The best, my best reading of the Tamiflu data is that it reduced the number of febrile days by one. Yeah. Now that at might the price still... of more nausea though on day one. That's so right. it's like you add that day to the beginning. <laughs> and look, that, that might still be a useful public health intervention if it gets more people back to work one day sooner because they have less days of fever, even if they're nauseous on day one. I mean, I can see maybe. But but it but it was you know sold as a drug that would prevent you from going to ICU, which it, you know, based on yeah. the data we have, probably it doesn't. was sold as a drug that we stockpile 20 billion worth. Uh you don't need no you don't need a stockpile of Tylenol. Uh yeah. you can just yeah, which is what it, yeah. No, that's a great example. That's you know, this kind of institutional memory, by that I mean the memory of medicine, you know, this is the hardest thing for me. So many people entered the fray. And and I, I'm not a stickler for epistemic trespassing. I think people bring whatever knowledge they have, and the more people you have, the better. But what bothered me a little bit was that some people who have there weren't that many people who remembered medical history in the sense that just in the last 20 years, I can think of so many things that were so promising that people would swear by and exalt on rounds uh, that just demo just collapsed on themselves when you studied them rigorously. Zygris, yeah. I remember Zygris in the unit. I don't know if you yeah. ever gave it. I remember Zygris yeah, in right. ICU. Yep. Lots of people swore by it. and yeah, Swore really by good. it. was like, miracle Zygris, sprinkle some Zygris. And then Eli Lilly withdraws from market Zygris. I was <laughs> like, okay, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think, I think history is so important. I mean, there's, there's the longer term history of how um, human communities respond to pandemics and emergencies and so on. And there's just the kind of shorter term history about what happened in the last pandemic. Well, uh, yeah, pharmaceutical companies, uh, you know, did some good, but also uh, hijacked the evidence-based medicine kind of uh, system to kind of, um, you know, hijacked publication bias to produce, um, you know, biased estimates of how effective some of their interventions were and so on, pressured governments to spend billions of dollars uh, stockpiling things that didn't work. Uh, a lot of people seem to have forgotten that lesson from a very short time ago. Um, and like you say, uh, forget that yeah, remdesivir was tested against Ebola and didn't work, uh, that a lot of the things that we've tested um, just don't, don't turn out to work in the long term. And so it's good to keep an open mind when we have something new, uh, you know, either a new um, you know, disease threat or a new thing that we're testing. Yeah, we should start off with very low priors and be very yeah. careful um, about you know, jumping 
Yeah. Now look at remdesivir. It's in the toilet with all these negative studies. Uh, here's one thing I want to ask you. I want to, I want you to walk me through your thinking on this issue. Um, <clears throat> I, the, I mean, the easiest one is the vaccine mandate for a 12 year old to go to school in Los Angeles. I'll put that aside because I think that we're going to agree on quickly. Um, you know, when you start to think about workplace vaccine mandates for SARS-CoV-2 in a nation like the United States, so you're in Australia, and we're going to come to lockdowns and Australian policy in a second, but when you think about the United States, you know, incredibly divided nation, and I think uh, more divided than I've ever seen it, uh, makes me nervous, very nervous, actually, about the future of this nation. And, um, and, uh, and, uh, and of course, you know, adult vaccination comes out and I think it's quite good. I mean, very effective, uh, certainly will reduce the morbidity and mortality of this disease at a population level. It is the greatest thing we've done. The, the certainly the strongest evidence for anything we've done and the biggest magnitude of benefit of anything we've done the whole pandemic. And like, I tell people, you know, I literally rushed out to go get my, you know, I rushed there to get there. Okay. So then, but then you start about the second order policy thing about the mandate. And here in this country, we use as the cudgel, like you'll lose your employment. And I think that it's, it's going to, you know, I was written, it's going to be effective. Like you're going to increase the percent of people who do it anytime you have such a strict cut, um, cudgel, um, a, a strict punishment. Um, but when I start to look at population demographics, I think the people you're going to hit are the people, working age people, 18 to, you know, 64, the 65 plus, you really can't, you know, you can't punish a retiree. I mean, you have no, you can't fire them from a job they don't have. Okay, so you hit this demographic, not the, really the demographic I want to hit. I want to, there's unvaccinated 80 year olds. That's really got me, you know, that's what I'm most worried about. Um, so, but you hit them and you'll increase the fraction, but there'll be a price. You'll, 1% of them will maybe lost from the labor force or half a percent or one tenth of 1%. But that's not nothing. That's a lot of people. And in this country with like no safety net, no, you, you lose your health insurance, you, you, you lose your purpose in life, um, and you're in a polarized environment. Um, you know, it, it's 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 a liability. It's a political and it's a public health liability to have people you push out of society, uh, angry in their homes, fuming at you. Uh, that's a it's a tinderbox, and and one little blow up here or there can offset massive amounts of uh, of life years can be lost in a minute. Um, so that's my first level calculation. I think about that just as a pragmatist. But then I start thinking about like the second and third order things, like um, you know, how many times can you do it? You don't know if this is going to be the, the ultimate fix of this pandemic. What if you have to come a year later with a new mRNA construct? You have to do something different. What if you need a third shot, fourth shot? How much can you keep imposing this power on people? And, and what will you do in response? And then finally, what are the political ramifications of these things? Um, if, if you let the other people come into power because you pushed it too hard um, and people get resentful of your political views, they may do damage in so many other ways, uh, environmental damage and climate damage and public health and healthcare damage. Um, so, so I guess I think about it like, um, you know, it's like a foreign policy gambit. I mean, it's incredibly complicated. Um, and I've always been, uh, but meanwhile, you, and, and you go on Twitter and it's just cheerleading. Like we ought to do this, of course, make the, make the, the, make the, the, the stick even bigger, hit him harder, punish them more. You know, it's not enough to lose your job. Maybe they shouldn't be allowed to have healthcare and let them die in the street. You know, if they get sick, let them die. And, and maybe, maybe kick them a couple of times, kick them too. You, you know, that's what you read. And it's, it's, I mean, so I wonder how you think about this. You, you want to elicit a behavioral change. Um, and you don't want to pay all this political price. How do you hand, how do you think about that? Well, yeah, that's incredibly complicated. And there's lots of interesting things to say about it. I mean, the first thing is that we should start with the idea that the ends don't justify the means necessarily, right? So yeah. of course, yeah. mandates can increase uptake, um, but they're not the only way to increase uptake. 
Uh, you know, there's a whole range of things we can do. We can subsidize vaccines and make them easily accessible. We can do outreach to communities who maybe are a bit more skeptical than others or have, you know, a long track record of not trusting public health and so on. Uh, we can recommend them strongly. Um, and yeah, down the end of the line, the kind of strongest liberty restriction is we can mandate them and yeah. put you in prison if you don't do it and so on. So there's a whole range of options that, that involve kind of, you know, a trade-off between- From carrots health. to sticks. From carrots to yeah. sticks, right? Yeah. yeah for, for example, yeah. That, and then involve trade-offs between health and freedom. But mm -hmm. I, I think just to, to take a step back about well, what's, what are we trying to achieve here? That's, that's an important question. And many people coming into this pandemic, me included, the standard mental model for vaccines is the measles vaccine. Uh, right. because it's kind of, you know, 95% effective. And because the main goal of measles vaccination is to protect babies, right? right. Babies, babies can't have the live measles vaccine. So we need children and adults to be immune to protect the babies until they can have the vaccine. So they don't have, they don't have a choice. Um, but, and also the measles vaccine is incredibly good at blocking transmission. All right. But none of those assumptions that I just highlighted apply to COVID. So mm -hmm. the key want to risk protect the oldest people. That's right. The key risk group is the oldest people. They have access to vaccines and they have access to vaccines that reduce their risk by 95%. Uh, COVID vaccines are very good at individual risk reduction, but they're not so great at transmission blockade. They provide some protection, but they're, you know, they're not they're far from perfect. And we don't know, we don't know what kind of what's that what's that can look like in the long term. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so uh, that's a very different ethical scenario. Yeah. Can we require young, healthy people to get vaccinated to protect older people who have access to a really effective vaccine? Um, and that's a very different calculus to the um, measles vaccine kind of idea. But a lot of people that hasn't kind of drifted in yet. And the other thing that hasn't drifted in is the idea that once COVID becomes endemic or it already is, the most likely outcome seems to be that everyone's going to get infected and reinfected over the course of their lives. Right, right. And right. so it's not that we can prevent people from getting infected by vaccinating more young people. We can just delay some infections and the kind of ethical case to mandate just to delay an infection is a lot weaker than to prevent, you know, transmission of infection. But particularly but when AEs enter the picture, such as myocarditis, et cetera. That's, that's right. I mean, I, I'm really worried about myocarditis in teenagers. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so there's a key difference between protecting yes. the vaccinated person and protecting others. And it's the protecting others thing that justifies the mandate. Can I make um, one more one more thing to add onto your pile, which is yeah. the distinction of like, um, I guess I, I'm not too aware. I mean, many of the many of the vaccine um, uh, 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 the vaccine uh, illnesses, the illnesses that have been tamed with public vaccination, um, uh, and there are many, and these are great success stories in public health. I, I don't doubt it. And and the people who did this work is hero it's heroic work. Um, but these were very different pathogens in a, in a certain sense. They had been intertwined with human beings often since antiquity. And so the fraction of vulnerable people at any moment may have been, I don't know what the numbers are. That, that's one thing. So when you debuted the vaccination campaign, um, the seed load you needed to extinguish might have been lower um, versus, you know, essentially when SARS-CoV-2 em emerged from Let's not say where it came from, but wherever it came from, <laughs> it, it hit uh, it hit b eight billion people without an ounce of pre-existing immunity. You know, I mean, we can debate it, but I mean, very very, very different than vaccination after a thousand years of measles, or I don't know how long we had measles, a hundred thousand years. Um, I don't, I, I guess I'm not a historian. I mean, I don't know. You know, so so a lot of um, I mean, you're making astute points, which is the people who benefit most from vaccination are the people who they themselves have the choice. Uh, that's one. Two, 
the thing I think that would have helped is uh, had there the less flip flops we had had all along, the, the they would have been more accepting of it. And um, and one more thing I'll put on this pile uh, is um, um, many of the most ardent proponents of vaccine mandates, they themselves took every opportunity to undermine vaccination when it was the Donald Trump vaccine. They said repeatedly, we will quote not trust a vaccine under a Trump EUA. He will just approve it to win the election. Um, there have been alterations to Pfizer's statistical analysis plan that you can look at the number of events that they would look at before they called it a win has been delayed because they wanted a two month minimum rather than two month median follow-up. Uh, and uh, I don't know what happens magically at this two month mark other than the election would come around. So the, in many ways, uh, you you do all that, put all that, pour all that poison in that pond, and then later wonder why people are are, are scared to drink the water. That's right. I mean, yeah, you know, we we not only need people to trust um, science and public health advice, we need to not push them too hard. Um, and one of the problems with mandates is it can lead to this kind of violent backlash. It can make people who were a little bit hesitant kind of entrench their views, and it can lead to long term breakdowns in trust in vaccines and public health, especially if we mandate something that also causes harm. You know, as has happened, or you know, you know as has kind of um, that's the kind of thing that we worry about in the history of vaccines. Um, but just to yeah, take one step back about these workplace mandates, yes. I think again, this this is a place where evidence based medicine could really help. Yeah. Um, because you know, people um, intuitively think that, for example, if a healthcare worker goes unvaccinated, they're posing this incredible risk to their patients, and that you know that that's something we should really worry about. Now, I agree, we should worry about harms to vulnerable patients that could be avoidable. The question is, how high are those risks? Right. And if you actually if you actually look at some kind of sober analyses, for example, of influenza vaccine mandates in healthcare workers in the US, yes. because so many healthcare workers will already agree to be vaccinated, right. and because so many people in the Definitely. population right. have some degree of immunity, the amount of benefit you actually get from a mandate on top of that is really small. And the number needed to vaccinate to prevent one patient death is about 6,000 or more in some cases. So you have to force 6,000 hesitant healthcare workers to get vaccinated to save one life. And I don't think a lot of people have those kinds of numbers in their head. They're kind of thinking on a one-to-one -one, yeah, uh, that yeah. you could you could result in their death. And you know, evidence-based medicine can really help here to kind of clarify those intuitions and put numbers on them. The same thing with masks. You do if you know, sit down and tell me how much you think the masks work and do the power calc. And when you're like, oh, we only need to randomize. 7,000 villages. You're like, oh, yeah, what are you there? You got some info, don't you? You got your put your power calc has told you the effect size, you know, the upper bound effect size. You got to randomize 4 million people. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> obviously, you have, a, you have a game changer there. Um, but yeah, your point is well taken um, about the mandates, the health workers. And then you have to weigh it against um, if you, the number needed to vaccinate 6,000. And if, if 500 quit, um, 100 quit. What are the health impact of having a hundred less healthcare workers? Yeah, and and having all these kind of bitter people who are kind of angry—that's what I, uh, I think is devastating. Science, science trained. I mean, that's the kind of thing that, you, as you say, can like poison the water more because you've got a lot of angry people who understand science more or less, and you know, might be used to kind of foment these kind of wars, yeah. cultural it's wars a, we're having about science. It's a, pow it's a powder keg. I mean, every person you're pushing out of society. I think is a powder keg, um, and I am very scared. Uh, you know, they wanted to do it in the movie theater, and I'll tell you the. I was like, I was, you know, like in this country, they're like, oh, we should have the vaccine passport of the movie. They check your thing. I was like, I'll tell you what movie I'm not going to. The movie where they start throwing people out, and they begin. I'm getting nervous in that movie theater. I was like, I'll, I'll sit by the exit, and I was like, you know what? Maybe I just watch it from home. I just watch it from home. I don't. I want to take any chances. A little nervous and nervous in this this country. Um, different than your country, at least we have some we have bigger problems in some in some public health matters. Um, 
<clears throat> that's very interesting to me. I mean, I think, uh, it, yeah, it's evidence-based medicine, but it's also just being quantitative about things. Um, and I think that that's also what bothers me about myocarditis is that, you know, I don't know, so many things to say, but, you know, we're getting rates that are now consistently between one in 3K to one in 20K um, for different ages between 12 to 22. And they're different point estimates and that, you know, and uh, you remember on Twitter, uh, John Mandrill, of course, comes in with one 6,800 and, and, you know, they portray him like Satan. And I was like, you know, and his paper is so flawed and has all these problems with it. And I was like, yeah, everything has problems with it. But the problem with the, when someone's job is to estimate a frequency and they end up with an estimate that's very close to what every other estimate is. Yes, you can go on and on about all the problems, but at some point, it's in the middle of all the estimates. So, you know, what do you, what do you want from that? Yeah, that's right. And I mean, I think the, my, the, the worry about myocarditis is that if you look through all the scandals in medical and public health history, the worst scandals are always when we harm healthy children or marginalized groups, right? Yes. Uh, and, uh, and also you know, people have spent months now saying that this vaccine-associated myocarditis is quote, mild and self-limiting, which probably it is in most cases, but certainly not in all cases. Of course, it's, and, yeah. These these idiosyncratic side effects have a distribution. It may be mostly mild, the mostly mild, but the tail, the tail is not what you want to ever have. It's going to be, I mean, we've already seen it. We have a paper, in New England, the New England paper shows some kids on ECMO and people are going to have scarring. And I mean, it's going to be some tiny fraction, but it'll be, it's not always mild. Most, right. yeah. And we just don't have, we don't have long-term data on what happens to those people. Right. Do they have, you know, cardiac issues down the line? and so on and there's and the, so to counterbalance the kind of worry about harming healthy children the other thing is well, two other things one is that there's no rush to vaccinate healthy children because the risks from covid to them are so incredibly low um you know despite what some people may say that's a controversy i know that's what kills me is that somehow that became controversial um but it, it really pains me the reason one in 8k matters so much is the other side of the ledger is it you're talking the same ballpark, you know, or actually you're talking different ballpark if you're looking at IFR, maybe a different order of magnitude ballpark. Yeah, I mean, again, if, I if people have trouble with these big numbers, whatever, but if you look at, for example, yeah, David Spiegelhalter, the professor of risk at Cambridge, yes, published, published this very early estimate saying if you're a healthy 30-year-old female and you go through one season of uh, COVID-19 in the UK, your risk of dying from COVID-19 is one in 350,000. Uh, which is roughly a quarter of your background risk of dying in a random injury. Yeah, now, yeah. that's not trivial. You know, that's an increase in your background risk, um, but it's not as big as many people think. And I think the problem is that we have used so much fear in public health that the general community massively overestimate their risks. They massively overestimate the risks to children. Um, and there has been a sustained campaign to try and magnify any kind of rare risks to children of the disease. But yeah, first of all, there's, there's kind of no rush. And second of all, we just don't have good evidence. I mean, that's the real worry here. How can we possibly conclude from a trial of a few thousand teenagers uh, using adult doses of a vaccine when the kind of the mantra of pediatrics is children are not little adults? You know, how could we conclude from from a couple of thousand people that it's uh, that it's safe and that that it's that the benefits outweigh the harms? We just can't conclude that based on the data that we have. Um, and and by, by authorizing and promoting the use of these vaccines in young people, we're also taking away the incentive for the pharmaceutical companies and researchers to do the research that we really need uh, to determine that the benefits outweigh the harms. And gosh, I don't know how this is going to go in the long term, but yeah, harming healthy children, it doesn't usually go well. Um, and 
yeah, it's it's another lost opportunity to, to and, gather the evidence that we need. Yeah. yeah. And and rolling the dice on healthy children doesn't go well. I mean, this is why, you know, Steph Brawl, Wes Pegner, and I got a lot of grief for our BMJ thing saying that the emergency use authorization, it's not intended for this. These are not the rates in which it's intended for. Um, and you need traditional approval. And again, if you use EUA, you allow them to waive a lot of pharmaceutical company responsibility in terms of running the necessary studies. Now we have the two people resigned from the FDA Office of Vaccine Drug Products. The top two people are resigning. Uh, these are unprecedented crises. And um, I guess I would say I'm, I'm happy with somebody to acknowledge these points and nevertheless hold their view. What really troubles me is that they're not conceding any of these points. Um, they're not acknowledging that this is a tension in this space. And the drumbeat for this is, is, is deafening, especially on social, social media. What we can talk about has been a poison for this whole thing. Um, we, um, having a website with, um, the 50 most fearful and mediocre scientists constantly commenting has never been a good, not a good idea, but here, yet here we are, here we find ourselves. Um, well, two things I wanted to say, the David Spiegelhalter thing I thought was nice because he quantified risk in terms of time units. Like it's like a year of risk is like a week of risk or sort of thing. A week of risk is like a year of risk. And uh, John, you know, you need this to his credit. I mean, he tried very hard to say, put these risks by age in terms of like how many miles you would drive to show you that, you know, for a young person, the risk is on par with driving like a million miles or something um, or hundreds of thousands of miles. But obviously, um, you know, he was not, uh, um, people weren't ready to hear it. Uh, that's, I mean, that's a question I'll ask you if this is something, you know, um, throughout the pandemic, they've always been, you know, people always ask on Twitter, like, why, why does this professor at Oxford disagree with the conventional narrative? Why does this professor at Harvard think like we shouldn't lock down society as we've never done before? And I'm like, of course, you know, you do something you've never done. There's going to be some smart people who see it differently. Anything you've literally never done that is broad and sweeping without exemptions will be seen differently by some people. And so the question isn't why it's, you know, why not others say it? You know, why these people, what are their points? Um, anyway, but very quickly, and I don't know, maybe this is just the way crises happen. Like every single person who disagreed with any little thing was, you know, systematically, I think, um, tarred and feathered. You know, they found, you know, uh, red herrings, uh, whatever. In the case of the Santa Clara, it was that um, that JetBlue. First of all, I don't think he was work. I mean, I don't know. This JetBlue guy gave money to some pooled account. And it made it seem like that they were like being paid off. But in reality, it was like, there's like a pittance and it was given to some Stanford pool. Um, but there's always been these kind of allegations taught, levied at every single individual. Um, is that just the way humans are in fearful states that they, is it, is it unique to this? Yeah, well, great. So there's lots of really interesting questions there. But I mean, yeah, first of all, I think if we just all calm down, most people would agree that in a crisis, you want as many really smart, well-informed people in the room, you know, giving their views, even if those views kind of vary. And yeah, Yonidi's clearly one of the smartest guys in evidence-based medicine, uh, you know, clearly one of the best meta-researchers in the world. Um, yeah, were some of his early estimates lowball and so on? Sure. Um, but we need people like that in the room, um, uh, rather than absolute consensus. I mean, there's nothing more dangerous for science than absolute consensus. But, uh, and, and, and ostracizing people and vilifying them and kind of, you know, trying to attack their personal lives, I think that's, that's really, you know, toxic to society and, and reasonable debate. And we've seen that over and over again. People just disappear um, once, they're, once they're attacked. Um, for instance, Ludvigsen from Sweden. That's right. Yeah, he disappeared. disappeared. 
that he didn't want to work on COVID anymore and so on. Um, I don't know. And what about Carl? I don't hear much from Carl anymore. Hennigan. There's a whole, there's a whole lot of people who've disappeared. Even just there's people, small people who like join social media, get attacked and then delete their accounts. I mean, that's happening. Julia Marcus wrote a bunch of interesting things. And then she said, enough's for me. I don't see her anymore. Um, Yeah. So many. And one more point about John. Wait, before I go, I just want to make one point. I think one of the interesting things about his essay was like, um, there were two parts to it, of course. One is like, you know, he says he's unsure and he wants to do all this testing. And he puts a big range of estimates from Spanish flu all the way to the lowball estimate that people have anchored on and said he predicted. I don't know if he necessarily did. I don't think he did. Um, But the second part of it was entirely separate, which is like no matter where it falls, um, is the cure worse than the disease? What is the penalty you're paying for these for closing schools, et cetera? And in many ways, fixating on the one thing that may have been slightly off was an excuse to evade the harder question of what have you done and what price will you pay? Um, anyway, but go with that, your that's, that's absolutely right. And, and there's been a terrible asymmetry uh, where people, if, if you make a low estimate, uh, you get pilloried. But then there's so many modelers who've made these estimates that are apocalyptic, almost ridiculous, several orders of magnitude, too high and so on. And yeah, if you believe those estimates, then maybe you think we should do really drastic things, but they've turned out to be incorrect. Yes. Um, and there's no, there's no, no penalty on that side. I there's know. no penalty. There's no penalty yeah. for them. Um, and uh, so just to go to, yeah, first the thing about, is this what happens in a crisis? I mean, yes, I, yes. Think it's a, I think it's a worry. So when you set these impossible goals, um, like the war on COVID, zero COVID, the war on terror, uh, the war on drugs, things that you can't possibly win, people are willing to commit more and more resources, accept more and more harms to kind of achieve this kind of illusory and sometimes impossible benefit. And then there comes this situation where anyone who disagrees uh, is ostracized as a danger to society, um, you know, in, in, co- in the case of COVID as someone who wants people's grandparents to die. But yeah, what we need actually is to have a reasoned debate in the middle. We need to accept that there probably are quite a lot of benefits to reducing the number of COVID cases or spreading them out and so on. Um, but also whatever we do comes at a cost and it comes at a cost to harms to health, uh, yeah, harms to children's health are are a catastrophe of this pandemic, um, you know, the long-term harms of, of school closures and also international kind of border closures and disruptions to aid programs and child marriages well, worldwide. We're going to be counting those for decades. Um, and we need to have a reasoned debate where people sit down and say, here's a plausible range of the benefits of the interventions. Here's some expected harms. Uh, and we need to take both of those seriously and try and work out, you know, can we accept them? And also how much how much you know unfairness and liberty restriction are we willing to accept? And they just we just failed to have that debate early on in the pandemic. And part of the problem is policymakers ask the infectious disease modelers for the most part to model uh, well how how can we get cases down? And that becomes the key benefit, the key metric. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're not asked to kind of weigh these more complex harms and benefits. And you know we don't, we need a lot of different people in the room. Uh, to do that. And and I think we're still failing to acknowledge these important trade-offs. Yeah. I think about of all the things I regret, the things I regret most about it, my own actions. I mean, I can only own my own actions. Uh, I regret I didn't, it's not that I pushed, it's that I didn't push more and I didn't push harder and I didn't burn what little political capital I had in my, in my own way. Um, but one of the things I wanted to ask, I tell you about is my theory of where the failure is. <clears throat> It's, it's, it's twofold. It's the lack of in-person interaction. This is how we do this now, 
which mm. is fine for this interview, I think is, is, is going good. But, um, but it's not fine for a discussion where people have different points of view. Those needs to be in person. That's one. Two, the universities. They, they have abdicated like I've never seen them abdicate. Um, this is, I think, a, it's a broader trend than just COVID. Universities were once funded by governments. In this country, they're no longer funded by governments. They're funded by selling, I don't know, uh, wait, they're looking for some startup lab to come up with some Lyrica or Gabapipri-Gabalin so they can make a lot of money so they can keep the lights on. Um, they're, they're always trying to get some company to partner with them. And I mean, you know, they're, they're selling themselves like, a, you know, like a salesman, these universities. I mean, what have we done to our public institutions? We've turned them into like, just like, uh, you know, uh, like some startup in your mom's garage or something, you know? Well, that's what we've done to them. And, and so when they're like that, you, so that's part of the culture. They're always trying to appease all these corporate interests. Then the next part of the culture is this culture of like, you know, ideas are harmful, harmful to me. You know, you said something I don't like. I'm harmed, physically hurt by your idea. Your idea is provocative. It's harming me. So we can't have those harmful ideas. And you put these two together. And what I saw systematically, I think the universities that should have been having d real debates, like debates on should we lock down again? Should we keep schools closed? Should we keep them open? Should we hear from sweet? They just totally abdicated that. They didn't host those debates. I can count on one hand the number of debates I've seen between people with serious people, professors at universities with legitimate policy disagreements. It was just gone. There was no, there's no institution in the world left with the ability to host the, and the media doesn't want to do it. Um, thoughts on this? Well, I, I mean, you're pointing obviously to a wider social crisis there and yeah. Do, do I regret not doing more early in the pandemic? Yes. I guess. But but I but I, you know, focus mainly on the things that I know best. So I, I focused on you know, research ethics issues in human challenge studies and vaccine development and so on and tried to influence policy there. But it, it quickly became apparent to me that kind of getting involved in public debates was was dangerous because people's fear was leading to kind of very violent outbursts and people didn't want to hear kind of um, varying views. So that was kind of one reason to keep quiet, but yeah, I, but I agree. It's kind of it's a pity that we can't have those debates. I I definitely agree that there's no replacement for meeting in person. You know, I would I would love to be doing this interview in person, okay. um, and yeah, maybe one day, uh, and mm. you can just get a much better level of human interaction. And also, there needs to be uh, transparent meetings between experts and the community, right? Yeah. So it needs to be not just decisions made behind closed doors in a liberal democracy. We need to be taking that information, speaking to people about what we know, uh, and then trying to come to a reasonable kind of compromise. Um, but yeah, that, that wider problem of, of what, what's the university's role uh, in the world, what is it is the Washington Post has democracy dies in darkness, right? So yeah. I mean, we're really, we're in a dark place right now. And yeah. Yeah, universities uh, are supposed to be a beacon of kind of intellectual light and debate and rigorous thought and so on. Uh, and if we abandon that, well, where else are we going to have? Where else are we going to have those debates and that diversity of views? Um, you know, that's a kind of um, you know optimistic view of universities. But and I guess you know one other thing I would add is that we shouldn't underestimate personal fear. You know, um, unlike say HIV, tuberculosis, and malaria, which kill millions of people every year. COVID really became something that, you know, university yeah, academic, yeah, right. that's right, university and academics in rich countries felt as an individual threat in many right. cases. Most of, most of them are kind of middle-aged or, you know, um, getting, getting older than that. Maybe they've got older parents, they're worried about their parents. And I think um, once you let fear enter into your own decision-making, 
it becomes much harder to kind of have a balanced view to hear alternatives and so on. And I agree, we need to give voice to a very wide range of views, especially when we're doing something radical to society that we've never tried before, which is exactly what we've been doing for the last you know, two years now almost. You know, I think one way to know you're in the right place in terms of your decision-making, um, these are, are going to sound silly, but I think you're, when you're, you are in a good place to think about issues when your weight is stable your appetite is stable, your eating is stable, your sleeping is good, you know? And for all the things I, that have been going on, I've always had that. I always, I'm always quite, and my, and my disposition is the same as it always was. I'm still doing a lot of things that I like to do. Don't tell anyone, uh, you, know, you know, still, okay. So, so then I feel like I'm in the same emotional place I was in peacetime as in COVID. And so I know, but when I see people you can tell they're fearful, they're anxious, they're, you know, seeking help, they're start nothing wrong with those things. You need to do those things to keep protect your 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 body and your your mental health. But that means in my mind, take a step back from the debate. <laughs> you know, you 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 know, maybe it's affecting you and maybe you need to kind of find your balance in life. I think I'm also concerned with the decline of religion and uh, in this, you know, when religion declines, people seek new gods. I, I used to always think I used to be such a fan of Dawkins when I was growing up, you know, I was like Dawkins and, and Dennett and all these, you know, uh, people, I was like, Oh, they're so rigorous thinkers. And yeah, religion did all these bad things. But now I, I don't ask that anymore because I see clearly if there were no God, man, they would make a new one. They'd make a new God and it would be whatever, you know, idea, you know, be something much more dangerous than the religions that have persisted. So I have no longer have that delusion. Um, but it's really interesting to me what you're saying about um, the debates and uh, I forget where I was going with this, but I think, yeah, you want to be in a good place to think about these issues. Um, the, the, the risk issue, thinking about low probability events, feeling the fear, I think it has affected a lot of people. Um, and uh, I see it at worst. And I sometimes I think, I don't know. <clears throat> I, I don't blame you for concluding that to some degree, the right answer is not to engage. I think that's often a quite rational um, development. Yeah, look, but I think, um, yeah, that fear thing, I think we have to be really careful whenever we're going to try and use fear in public health because we see it get turned to kind of, you know, dangerous political purposes all the time. Yes. And people, people have this kind of background idea that uh, that fear drives compliance, that shaming people will make them comply and so on. And sure, maybe it will like improve compliance a little bit, but in the long term, um, yeah, it can break down trust. Uh, and when people find out that what they've been told, you know, isn't a true representation of reality or the facts that people had, well, they're going to be angry about that. And we really need to try and maintain that trust in the long term. Um, so, yeah, I'm worried. I'm worried about the use of fear and, and how we will you know, recover from this. You know, somebody um, I know was worried about a lot of the themes that have intersected over this time, such as um, people are very bad at thinking about the denominator and numerical risk. And, and a, a story about a hospital struggling or a unit struggling is so emotionally powerful. Um, you know, uh, a 15 minute vignette about a poor child who passed away from COVID. I mean, I feel my, my heart breaks. I do anything to prevent that from happening. Um, so these kind of available stories are emotionally resonant. 
um, which is also, which is a strength of human beings. It's what makes us human, but it's also vulnerability because somebody who is a despot or a tyrant can seize that and say, hmm, there's an anecdote over here. Let me amplify that. Let me turn that up. Let me point to that. Then the next thing, um, what's the limiting principles we've had? There's no limiting principles I see. You can put troops in the street and you people don't want to go home. You can beat them with clubs and spray them in the face. And, you know, you can put them in prison. We've accepted all that in the, in the name of help. So the tyrant can see that and say, you know, I'll put my troops in the streets. I'll stop movement. Tracking your movement on your phone. We already have a, everyone's always worried about that microchip in the vaccine. You have it. It's already in your pocket. It's, it knows where you are. You've had it for years. It's tracking you. So we've accepted that. The tra- you know, put some software on your phone. I can track your whereabouts in the sake of public health. Um, we haven't yet had, well, no, we've had, I think one state in the U.S. suspended a primary election. It's unsafe to do. Um, when you start to, sus- you could suspend elections. And so, you know, I, I, and then, and then censoring uh, dangerous ideas. Social media should delete videos. Delete the video if it says anything that will harm the message of public health. Delete it, purge it, uh, not just re- rebut it but vanish it, extinguish it, silence the speaker, turn down the volume on them. And that used to be something that liberal uh, academics thought unthinkable. But the, in the last 20 years, the, it has swung so far that the people who used to fight for freedom of speech now say, burn, you know, burn the books if they say the wrong thing. You take all these trends together, and someone I know wrote a little piece pointing out that that is a huge vulnerability for democracy, um, and it can all it can be misused uh, by anyone to come along and take these things, and they don't need a lot; they just need a bad flu season to do it. Um, yeah. Well, so yeah, so just just to, uh, to go through yes, a couple yes, of those things. Yes, yeah, the yes. first one is yeah this idea of you know one way of talking about it is the base rate fallacy yes, that when people yes. when people hear a story about one person. Uh, they will overestimate what's happening at the in the background, what the base rate is. And we've seen that over and over again in the pandemic. So the one child that gets sick makes people think that it's a high risk to children. The one ICU in Northern Italy that gets overwhelmed makes people think the whole world's going to get overwhelmed. Um, all kinds of things like that, plus medical anecdotes and so on. Um, and that's not a rational way to make decisions. We can't make decisions based on anecdote, but a lot of policies have been made that way. Um, and then, yeah, this kind of crisis. I mean, if you look in history, you know, um, societies have faced similar crises before, you know, when the printing press initially became available, people were printing all kinds of pamphlets that said true and false things. And then mm. we developed as a society, a way of kind of understanding that not everything that was written down was true and, and so on. Mm. Um, that didn't necessarily involve kind of violent censorship in all cases. Um, and we're facing that with the internet and uh, big tech and so on now working out how to manage this new kind of information um, kind of economy. But I mean, it, the, the kind of counterpoint I would say here is that we really, it's 18 months into the pandemic, we need to start speaking the language of hope, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, science, among other things, can help us do this. You know, for example, we could say to people now, the data are in. COVID-19 is almost never transmitted outdoors. Right. And, and so you can do pretty much whatever you want outdoors, apart from, you know, really, really crowded things and so on. Um, and even then, the other thing that the science is in on is immunity, right? Oh, and God. and one of the problems has been that people had a yeah. well, people, yeah, people first of all denied that there was post-infection immunity, and the World Health Organization you know, changed the definition of herd immunity on their website. Yeah, two vaccines. Um, tempor- yeah, right. They're temporarily, um, and uh, you know, unfortunately, many people had a very sort of Wikipedia level knowledge of herd immunity. Yeah, they thought it was this thing. Where the immunity so once you hit that number, it all vanish. 
Because that's what the model says will happen. And, and a big problem is that people have been are living inside these models and thinking that the models are reality, but the models are not reality. They're just a kind of a picture of their assumptions. Yeah. They're trying to illustrate things. But I think we should be able to say to people that, well, yeah, outdoor, it's very low risk for respiratory viruses. Uh, we should be able to say to people that herd immunity whether it's a combination of vaccine or infection or whatever, once a lot of people are immune, we can safely mix as human beings in society again um, with respect to this individual disease. Because if we don't say that, then what you're effectively saying is we should cut ourselves off from other people and other societies. Forever. Yeah, that's right. As I said recently, if we do that, we become more and more like the kind of pre-Columbian American civilizations who have their own little kind of diseases and immunities and so on, but haven't seen those of other people's. And uh, we need to be able to trust in herd immunity to multiple viruses to keep our societies stable and safe. Uh, and if we are, you know, locking away societies, locking away people, preventing children, you know, from catching mild viruses, well, then there's going to be less immunity around. And potentially that's going to lead to backlash, you know, uh, rebounds. And we've already seen that. We've seen rebounds RSV, of yeah. Yeah, RSV all around the world. And well, that tells us something, right? And if you looked 100 years ago in infectious diseases and epidemiology, people talked about uh, infectious diseases as, you know, an ecological problem. It's a problem of human beings living together, living together with animals, living together with pathogens. And we need to keep that as stable as possible because if we disrupt that stability, if we disrupt that equilibrium of immunity and infection, well, that can lead to kind of, you know, worse outcomes than the kind of benefits we were trying to pursue but we've lost that. We've lost that ecological view. Instead, we're kind of uh, convinced that our technical, technological interventions uh, are kind of magic bullets uh, and that we, we can have mastery over our environments and so on, that we can control uh, the way individuals and populations behave and we can you know, prevent the spread of viruses. But I think there's reasons to be skeptical that that's going to be feasible in the long term. That's so well put. I put it in three buckets. There's things we do in three buckets. One bucket, things you do that actually don't do anything. Um, that just you just pay price and don't do it doesn't have any benefit. Uh, for instance, in this, I walk around here, I see all these little kids masked outside, adults masked outside in like the most vaccinated city in the world. And I think to myself, that's in the it doesn't do anything bucket. You're just wasting your time, but do as you wish. Then yeah. there's the things that will may delay the time until you get COVID. Um, delay the time until you meet the virus someday. Uh, and that might be wearing the right mask at the right time, like uh, N95 when you go in the patient's room or, you know, the places we know that this that these interventions do work. Um, they delay. And then the things you do that actually like substantively mitigate your risk of bad outcomes, such as vaccination. And maybe, I don't know, it's not been studied, but potentially losing weight and improving your general physical health is potentially one, but vaccination is one that's proven. That's what you do. So you want to maximize that bucket, vaccinating the people who are at high risk. The things that delay, I think we need to have a societal conversation about the benefits and harms of that delaying. Um, and you know, I tell people that if at a distance of at a distance of two inches, all human respiratory epithelium is connected at a time span of one year, that we all going to touch eventually. Like it is not, it is a, it is this thing constantly moving and touching. And and there's a penalty for keeping apart. I mean, one penalty is mental penalty. This is a primate, a primate that's meant to socialize. And you cannot keep that primate apart. The cruelest punishment, of course, is solitary confinement. Um, and, you know, and this is cruel. And, uh, and uh, you know, we're just meeting each other. It's Zoom is okay. Um, but if to have any intimate relationships, to have any deep relationships with people like this, this is a farce. Um, you don't have it. And if, you, if, you, if you've only seen your parents or grandparents through this, um, that's not life. 
Uh, uh, so, so that's the second bucket. And the third bucket, the things you do that just don't do anything, just omit it, that bucket can be thrown out. But I think I would argue that we probably did 10 to the power of eight different things. I mean, it's going to be a huge from closing like this ice rink in like, you know, Ontario to making this person wear this cloth mask outdoor here in San Francisco. I mean, 10 to the eight different strategies were tried in this pandemic, um, probably 10 to the power of seven, 10 to the power of eight. Most of them are in the bucket of just didn't do anything. It was just theater. And some of them are in the bucket that had delayed the virus. So it was reasonable to do until you got the vaccine. But once you get the vaccine and you get the supply to people, I'm not sure what else you can do. Yeah, but so I think that's a, that's a hugely important distinction that isn't made often enough. Um, that kind of distinction between the second and the third bucket. There's the ones yes. that delay and there's yes. the ones that prevent. Yeah, and that, right. that's one of the wonderful things about vaccines is that they allow us to like <laughs> go back to like interacting with people yeah. if provided the vaccines give you in individual protection and some amount of transmission blockade. They allow you to go back to, to interacting with people and not having, to, not having to worry about all that stuff with respect to that particular pathogen. Um, and yeah, we need to be clear about uh yeah what our criteria are as a society for when it is reasonable to to put in these things that you know maybe might delay things and we need to have you know approaches in evidence-based public health to try and distinguish between the first bucket and the second bucket especially uh, yes. to try and work out what's doing nothing what's delaying yes. things and how long is it delaying it for and and what's the benefit of that delay i mean sometimes delaying things is worse for example because covid risk increases with age. So actually you want to catch it as, as soon as possible. You yes. want to get your post-vaccination infection as soon as possible because I'm things are only getting, getting worse. Yeah, things are only getting worse. <laughs> yeah, only no, getting I, worse. Think, I, I think you're right on a lot of these things. I mean, the other thing I think about is like, um, it should mean we're all vaccinated, go back to normal. I just gave a grand rounds to some people. Everybody is probably who would have attended is under the age of 50. I'm pretty confident. And, uh, it was virtual because of we're all vaccinated, 100% vaccination rate. The test positivity in this area is very low. And yet, what are we waiting for? I, I think it's, I think, I don't know what to think. I just don't know what to, I just don't know who is, who's making this policy. What, 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 what's going to be different five years from now? We're just going to be a little older. I mean, we, we have to go back to normal at some point. Um, yeah. and, 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 and those, yeah. No, you go on. I was just going to say the last thing I was going to say, like the, the worst example is like the, the colleges and universities. They're like draconian. And I'm like, you literally have the group of the healthiest young people vaccinated and they're the ones who have to suffer the most while everyone else go to the bar. I was like, get out of here. It makes no sense. The, the kids in school have to suffer the most when you, when you can go to a bar and get, you can get as many drinks as you want. Take your mask yeah. and you wear the mask to walk in, obviously to walk in. That's when it spreads. But then you take it off and have all your drinks and laughs. And then, but you put it back on when you walk out or go to the bathroom obviously this is how it works yeah that's right and um that's a perfect example of kind of unfair distributions of benefits yeah, yeah. burdens and restrictions you know they, they just they don't match where they're actually going to produce a benefit so that, that's a problem ethically speaking with the public health kind of map um but uh yeah just to go back to yes. um uh what, yeah what can we do about the kind of the first bucket stuff uh and, and about going going back to normal so your people aren't stupid and they remember what they were told, which is we just have to do this for a little while yeah. uh, until we get the vaccines uh, and then we're going to be able to kind of have a life again. And I, I'm totally sympathetic to what you're saying about we need human interaction to be human, right? Yeah. Uh, we need to spend time with other human beings. And the longer we delay that, you know, the bigger problems we're going to have in mental health and otherwise, including suppressing infectious diseases that we need herd immunity to, you know, yeah. the kind of viruses that we catch every year and so on. Um, but again here, you know, Science should be in a position 
not only to impose restrictions, but to create hope. You know, yeah, some of the yeah. some of the lost lessons from the HIV pandemic yeah. was, for example, you know, being clear to people that you couldn't catch HIV by hugging people. Yeah. You couldn't catch it by shaking their hands. Yeah. And if we could, we could show people that, for example, yeah, shaking hands, is that a high risk for transmitting COVID? It doesn't look like it. No. Uh, you know, uh, fomite and surface transmission, is that a thing? Doesn't look like it. Outdoor transmission looks incredibly rare, perhaps non-existent. Um, and we need to be able to say to people, well, here's, here's all these things that are safe, plus uh, the vaccines work. And as you say, if the, if the smartest most scientifically informed people uh, in medical grand rounds and in universities are still hiding away from each other. Yeah. Um, that's not sending a very kind of, it's not sending a positive message. It's also not very sending a very scientific message no. because if we were confident in all this, in all this stuff, then we would be much more confident to, to go back to interacting. But I view but one that, of the great missed opportunities and I tried my best to write about it, which is, Vaccination needed to be presented as the thing that beyond which it's over. You're done with everything. You're vac you did your part. And I've written in one column that I think like one of the carrots that has not yet been attempted is for municipality to say, we're at 80 some percent. You get us to 92 and we promise no matter what will come, we're not reinstituting any of these policies. It's just going to go. Uh, that's a carrot that's an that is a, a real carrot for some people who just don't want to, uh, who want to get back to normal. And, and I actually think that it's not an unreasonable carrot. Um, you know, in the absence of healthcare collapse, we should have pushed uh, hard on schools. They have such a good for these kids and we should let people to be as free as possible in the absence of like, uh, you know, the local hospital literally collapsing. And I'll put one more asterisk on this, which I got in a little bit of trouble for saying. In the, the, these hospitals are, the, the model of hospitals in the United States is to always run really, really high and have very little buffer because that's what really is profitable. That's just the way we've incentivized it. For many years, healthcare systems run like that. And there've been many, many papers that go back comparing Boston to you know New Haven to et cetera, this huge literature on this space. And so we might want to rethink of like having some buffer in healthcare systems for when you have a real calamity so that they can quickly expand and governments will have to subsidize that so that the hospitals don't have to foot the bill clearly they will not do that. And so an ICU goes from 80% full to overcrowded very easily. It has no buffer. That's right. I mean, and there's some economic principles for why hospitals run like that and they run like that here too. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's very easy for them to become, quote, overwhelmed. Um, and if you look back at, for example, the 2017 influenza B pandemic, which wasn't declared a pandemic, but influenza mm -hmm. B spread all around the world. It was a terrible flu season. I was working on the front lines. Australian excess mortality went up by 10%. So like 10% more people died every week that winter than normally die. Um, you can look at news articles that say it's an unprecedented uh, influenza, the hospitals are overwhelmed and so on. And as you say, we need to be better prepared for this because the cost, of course, is that if we have this extra chunk of people in the hospital, well, then other people can't receive medical care. Um, and we're already seeing in Australia and elsewhere, I presume, excess mortality for some other conditions, you know, trickling up, you know, yeah. diabetes-related deaths, dementia-related deaths, cancer-related deaths, that's your specialty, right? Yeah. Um, those are all increasing. And presumably, you know, one of the reasons for that is kind of pressures on healthcare. But another reason is, is this kind of panic and chaos and fear that's been instilled on people where even when the health system could potentially care for them, they're not coming in to receive care. And so it's kind of multiple levels to the problem. But um, yeah, clearly we need to be a, have a better system for kind of dealing with this kind of surge because, um, as you've pointed out recently, we've set a very unhealthy precedent yeah. in the last two years.
Um, because like I said, in 2017, there was a really bad influenza B year. Yeah, and no one called it anything. No one called it anything. No one said we need to institute, um, you know, outlandish measures. Now, to be fair, you know, it was never going to cause the kind of morbidity Correct. peak of, of a new COVID, coronavirus. Yeah, That's yeah. not what I'm saying. But when, what I am saying. No one, the thought of closing schools would be unthinkable. That, that's right. And everyone agreed. It's sober pandemic planners had sat down together and said, you know, schools should be the last to close and the first to open. And what we mean by that is a maximum of four weeks at the yeah. peak of transmission. And then they need to just snap back because we, not- we were closed for over a year in many cities in this country. And the places yeah. that closed, they're not the places with the most COVID. They're 100% political. Political. I mean, the, the link between that and political and, and union strength, I mean, these are not good precedents. I guess I'll, I'll say one last thing and then give you the last word. Um, the last thing I want to say is that, uh, you know, I, I, I think I was a first year in college when 9-11 happened. I remember the moment, you know, of course, it's a, it's a moment that's like seared into my consciousness. And from that moment until 2020, 20 years of my life, I think so much of the world was shaped by those of that event. Uh, and not, not, not all that event. All we did in rep- response to the event to fight the war on terror invading countries that had nothing to do with it, et cetera, and spending, you know, killing many children in these other countries and damaging, sowing the seeds of uh, war in the Middle East for another hundred years and all these foolish choices done out of fear. And I thought to myself, you know, God, that's going to be like a defining event in my life. I'll be living through this. And that's a shame that, you know, we couldn't have had a more coherent plan. And then 2020 hit. And it was the second one in my life that I think, but this one I think is deeper. It's a deeper scar and you haven't even seen the bottom of the scar. You, 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 know, you don't even know the bottom of the wound. There's hundreds of thousands of kids just lost from school systems. There's like no one's talked to them in years. Uh, uh, when you start to find what happened to these kids, it's going to be horrific. Um, so many ways in which healthcare has been disrupted, lives have been disrupted, um, upward mobility has been disrupted, wealth has been disrupted, wealth transfer has been disrupted, all the things that I believe are so important for the health of a society, the socioeconomics has been dis- disrupted. And I think I'm going to be like, the rest of my life will be this. It'll be this scar. And I just pray I can't take a third wound uh, of, of just irrational, uh, fear-based policy in response to some calamity, um, I think it will it will end me personally uh, and it will end our society. Um, I'll give you the final thoughts on this issue. You're such a, it's a great, I mean, a great account to follow. And I've agreed with so many of the things you've said, and I've really appreciated hearing from you. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. Um, I'll give you the last thoughts on this. Yeah, thanks. Likewise. Um, yeah, I think that, that's a good kind of interesting analogy because yeah, the, the structure of, of the kind of problem and the response is kind of similar. Yeah. You can't fight a war on terror and you can't fight a war on a respiratory virus that's already established worldwide. Uh, and once you kind of declare a war, adopt that kind of footing, then we, then people make unreasonable sacrifices and start saying, uh, yeah, if you don't, if you don't comply with what we say, then the terrorists win or the virus yeah, wins. Yeah. And that can really, that can really break down the social fabric of society and lead to bad decisions, lead to unfair decisions, lead to unreasonable restrictions on liberty. Um, and we've seen all of those things in both of those crises. Um, and so I mean, I, my kind of last words on this would be, the first thing is that we need to acknowledge trade-offs uh, that, you know, in public health, uh, there's trade-offs between health and freedom and fairness. And in the background, you know, liberal democracy is a really fragile institution. If you look in the, you look in history, most of history uh, is tyranny uh, with the with the very rich uh, con- controlling all the wealth, 
and the very poor living a very poor quality of life. And there was, you know, there was been a brief window in the late 20th century where there's been a relative exception to that long-term trend. Uh, and I don't want to go back to that, that long-term trend. And, you know, we can prevent that, but we would need to be really careful. Uh, That's why I wrote my article, How Democracy Dies, which I got so much grief for. I wrote it because I think you're absolutely right. It is a fragile bird. It is a delicate bird. Um, it can be lost in a moment. And and yes, there are all these things that we know to worry about, voter fraud and voter rigging and all these suppression, all these horrible things going on. There's other vulnerabilities we didn't know existed. Now we see them there and we're so vulnerable. You, there's no limiting principle. There's no baseline risk. There's no trade-off discussion. If something is threatens your life, you can do anything to stop it. And, and I don't worry about the good people. I worry about there's a few people who will do anything to keep themselves in power. That's right. And, and, and we as a society, we as people need to be able to speak to one another, you know, freely. We need to be able to have debate. We need to be able to acknowledge uncertainty. Uh, you know, scientists need to be able to clearly communicate the, 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 what the evidence is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, as I said earlier, we really need to be able to speak the language of hope too, not just the language of fear. Uh, and yeah, science and ethics, you know, can help us to do that. Uh, but it's up, but it's up to us to choose to go back to a society that we want to live in. Zeb Yamrozik, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for doing this. Thanks. It's been a real pleasure too. Thanks for now. Thanks for listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Plenary Session is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it. Until next time.